welcome to Swarthmore Presbyterian Church's podcast. This is your host, Alex Evangelista. We are delighted you are here, and don't forget to like, subscribe, and share our podcast. You are now listening to a sermon recorded for June 6, 2021, titled The Longest View by Reverend Sarah Cooper Seawright. Please join me in prayer. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The first scene of the first episode of HBO's TV drama, The Watchmen, opens up on a young black boy sitting in an empty movie theater, delightedly watching a silent movie. The view moves quickly over to his mother, playing the soundtrack on an upright piano with a worried look on her face. On the screen before them is a black sheriff trying to calm an incensed white mob. Outside of the theater, we hear the sound of gunfire. Suddenly, the boy's father rushes in, hands his mother a rifle, and together they run out into a scene that is utterly inconscionable. This opening sequence to a televised rendering of a graphic novel released in June of last year, was the first time that I think I learned of the Tulsa race massacre. Though dramatized in this series, as we have come to know, it is real. A historic, horrific event memorialized this week, 100 years after the fact. I grew up in Dallas, Texas, four hours due south of Tulsa on Interstate 75. I went to school there. I took Texas history and U.S. history, AP government and modern history, among others. I enjoy history. I paid close attention. And I do not recall learning about the Greenwood District an area that was developed after the First World War to become a thriving African-American community known colloquially as Black Wall Street. I do not recall hearing how after a chance encounter on an elevator between Dick Rowland, a young black man, and Sarah Page, a young white woman, details of that encounter festered and were spun out of control by the community surrounding Greenwood. The next day, the young man was arrested. That day, white and black citizens faced off at the courthouse in Tulsa. I do not remember seeing in my US history books pictures of the mob that descended upon Greenwood on June 1st of 1921, looting stores, shooting in the streets, 
tossing crudely homemade incendiary devices into homes, imprisoning, injuring, and killing residents. Estimates today surmise between 100 and 300 people died that day. 800 were treated for injury. Over 6,000 were taken into custody after the governor declared martial law and the Oklahoma National Guard arrived, arresting not members of the mob, but all black Tulsans who had not already been interned by vigilantes. In 2001, 80 years after the event, a race riot commission was organized to review details of the event and said that there was no question to the truth of it all. But we did not remember this. Many of us, like myself, never knew it. We were not encouraged to remember it. It was not included in common curriculum. There was no attempt until recently to officially remember or recognize it. Only those who could not forget it have brought it back to our minds. Just last month, Viola Ford Fletcher, called Mother Fletcher, and who worked most of her life as a domestic worker, was invited to testify before the United States House of Representatives Subcommittee on the Constitution, Civil Rights, and Civil Liberties. Mother Fletcher is one of the few remaining survivors of the Tulsa Race Massacre. And at 107, she could recall with clarity how she felt. And an extended quote from her testimony, Mother Fletcher said, on May 31st, 1921, I went to bed in my family's home in Greenwood, in the Greenwood neighbor of, neighborhood of Tulsa. The neighborhood I fell asleep in that night was rich, not just in terms of wealth, but in culture, community, and heritage. My family had a beautiful home. We had great neighbors, and I had friends to play with. I felt safe. I had everything a child could need. I had a bright future ahead of me. Greenwood could have given me the chance to truly make it in this country. Within a few hours, all of that was gone. The night of the massacre, I was awoken by my family. My parents and five siblings were there. I was told we had to leave, and that was it. I will never forget the violence of the white mob when we left our house. I still see black men being shot and black bodies lying in the street. I still smell smoke and see fire. I still see black businesses being burned. I still hear airplanes flying overhead. I hear screams. I live through the massacre every day. And our country may forget this history. I cannot. I will not, the other survivors do not, and our descendants do not. Over the past few years and a little more, we have been doing more of this discovering of ourselves and our history as a country 
remembering the things some wish would stay forgotten and others wish that they could forget. It is uncomfortable to say the least, to be confronted by stories from our past that remember in us trauma and grief and terror, or in which we find that people who look like me were the cause of that trauma and grief and terror. We well know that some argue that there is no point in dredging up the past. Look at the advances. Look at where we have come. It is not that way anymore. What do we get by looking backwards? Elder of the civil rights movement, Ruby Sales, speaking at a gathering of theologians, meeting to reimagine the public good of theology in this country, said among this group that one of the gifts of our theologies, that is, how we speak of God and our relationship to God and God's relationship to this world, one of the gifts of our theologies is that they have hindsight, insight, and foresight. I cannot get this out of my mind. The gift of theology, the public good of how we attempt to know and understand God is the longest view. The view that takes in past, present, and possibility. This is what we grasp to understand when we imagine and talk about and teach who God is and how God relates to us. This world in 2021, the one that our graduates will shape into adulthood, the world of 1921, the world and the people from whom we hear in our reading this morning. For generations, the people of Israel were ruled over by priests and judges, appointed and anointed by God. We might remember Samuel as a young boy whose mother, Hannah, promised her child in service to the Lord as thanksgiving after waiting barren for years. As a boy, Samuel served alongside Eli. And after the prophet realized God's voice and nudged Samuel to hear God's calling, young Samuel had to deliver unwelcome news to his mentor. His children, that is Eli's, would not succeed him as prophet and seer, for they did not follow in his ways. Instead, it would be Samuel. So years later, Samuel found himself in a similar place when the elders arrived before him, saying that they would like him to appoint a king to rule over him, to rule over them. For his children, that is Samuel's, did not follow in his ways. Or so that is how it begins. What we hear in this passage as we keep reading, however, is a people yearning to move forward, to be considered a real nation with real leadership, a people who are frightened by the military might around them, 
by near misses of invading armies, including the Philistines, whose professional army, their volunteer force, only barely kept at bay. A people who might very well have said in their argument for a king, look at how far we have come. We are not who we were back then. What do we get by looking backwards? It is sometimes the most difficult place to be in the present, for the past seems remote and the future unclear. It had been long enough that those generations removed from Egypt had never known the feel of the burning sun on their ancestors' backs when they packed clay bricks. The Hebrew children slaughtered at the whim of Pharaoh. The feeling of walking away from enslavement and into freedom. They had come to forget God's gracious acts. This is the challenge with the past. Sometimes we cannot ever let it go. But other times, we can hardly recall what it was like. In response to their request, God gave people a sense of what that past was by looking into their future, asking Samuel to remember for them what a king could become, a litany eerily reminiscent of Pharaoh, a king that you choose for the sole purpose of protection and might is one that very well may see you right back into exploitation and enslavement. God intentionally invited them to remember and to believe it, as painful as that might be, and to let that memory inform the choices of their present to make way for their future. God invited them to continue to trust God. The Israelites chose not to remember though. They chose not to revisit the demons of their ancestors' past in order to release themselves from the grip they still held. They barreled forward and the outcome was as bleak as Samuel described. Though God did hear their cries in the end, God did turn an ear. God saved them again. Don't forget, God always acts with grace. But we do forget, they forgot. And when we forget or gloss over or choose not to see or assume that we have earned it, then any trust that we have in God begins to recede. We fall back into the patterns of pain we search within ourselves or for others, for anything, anyone, any ideology, promising even for a moment to soothe our troubled souls. When we cannot see beyond our discomfort of now, our need of comfort right now, then the view is not much longer than the end of our nose. So I wonder, what if grace were the lens with which we could lengthen our view? Clearing up the dirt 
and debris of anxiety over what we might hear, or the fear over how we might feel confronted, or the desperation to avoid pain, freeing us to tell and to listen in vulnerability and in care. There is grace in the space we are given to tell our stories. And there is grace in the space we give to hear the stories of others. There is grace in believing what is sometimes challenging to hear. There is grace in learning from where we have been and in change. Grace is what moves us from where we have been to where we can be. This is surely an act of faith. And this is the faith of the church. For church, as people of God, we have stories that we tell again and again and again and again and again and again, one generation to the next through worship and Sunday school and vacation Bible school and mission trips, Bible studies and small groups. Our scripture stories are sometimes those that make us feel good, but just as often they challenge us. They are stories that do not shy away from the terror that we can and do inflict upon one another. They are stories that remember a people who never seem to make the right decisions and a God who never forgets them. They are stories that can center women and refugees, prisoners and the mentally ill, betrayers and deniers and enemies of the state, imperfect people, all but one, the one who embodies grace. And as the body of that one, the church in the world still, I come back then to Elder Sales and to Mother Fletcher and suggest that for us to remember and repair and offer reparation in instances of such pain in our history, to learn from them so that we may never turn down that way again. In doing this, we are enacting good public theology. For we are affirming that God has investment in the flourishing of every person and community, and that God does hear the cries of her people. We are cultivating in ourselves and in this world, grace, the longest view, one which I am certain continues to open up the passageway from bondage to freedom for all, a way we know that God knows intimately and has seen God's people through many a time. We can trust that. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon, recorded for June 6, 2021, titled, The Longest View, by Rev. Sarah Cooper-Sirak. 
We'll see you soon. May the peace of Christ be with you.